We are going to be in John chapter 17. For those of you who are here who don't know, my name is Ricky Ragone. I'm one of the pastors here, music and arts and youth pastor at King's Chapel. And uh, today is Super Bowl Sunday, so we decided to put the one up here who looks the most like a lineman. That would be me. But I went to too small of a high school, so we didn't have football. That's that. But anyway, more importantly, we are in John 17, looking at verses 1 through 5. The beginning of Jesus' prayer as he closes his time in the upper room. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. At this time, uh, the kids and teachers can be dismissed to go to the children's church classes. We have classes available for pre-K to 8th grade, if you don't know. All right, John 17. As I mentioned, John 17 is uh, the conclusion of Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples. Believe it or not, we've been looking at this time of Jesus being in the upper room for 11 weeks. I went back and counted. 11 weeks we've been in John chapters 13 to 16. And in that time, we've seen the heart of Jesus and his desire to equip the disciples for what's to come. Both in his death and resurrection, but also in what they can look forward to um, after he departs. Um, Jesus comforts them, comforts the disciples with this hope of being with Jesus in future glory, but also warns them that before that happens, they're going to endure suffering. And that suffering is not going to be replaced with joy. But that suffering will become their joy. And Jesus promises that the disciples won't have to go through it alone. He's sending them a helper, an advocate, who will dwell with them and in them, who will teach them all and bring to remembrance what Jesus had taught. He'll send them the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. What a gift. And it's through the Spirit that the disciples are empowered to live on mission and are transformed to look more like Jesus himself. Last week we left off, the end of chapter 16. Jesus reminds them that he's leaving. And though they think they get it, they don't fully understand still what that looks like. And he told them these things that they might have peace. And then Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And it's at this point where, where Jesus turns his attention from addressing his disciples specifically, and he finishes their time in prayer. That's where we pick up this morning. And this prayer is commonly known as the High Priestly Prayer. I'm sure in a lot of your Bibles it has a little heading that says Jesus' High Priestly Prayer or the High Priestly Prayer. That's what it's known as. It's a neat piece of Scripture because we get to see Jesus 
in communication with his father. See how the son and the father communicate together. This truly is the Lord's Prayer. You know, we think of the Lord's Prayer as the prayer that Jesus gives us to pray in Matthew 6 when he says, pray like this. But really, that's, that's a prayer for, for followers of Christ. That's a prayer for us because it talks about how we ask for forgiveness of our sins, but Jesus doesn't ask for forgiveness for sins because he was sinless. But today, we truly have what would be Jesus' prayer for himself to the Father. It's not an instruction for how we should pray, but more we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus as he interacts with God, the Father. And as the Spirit works in us and through us, even though we're not praying this prayer specifically, there's things in here that we just can't pray. We can see the similarities of how our hearts should be tuned, how we should be praying. And the prayer takes up all of chapter 17, so we're going to be in it for a few weeks. But it can be broken down into three parts. Jesus' prayer for himself, that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus' prayer for his disciples, and Jesus' prayer for all future believers. And today, today's section on Jesus' prayer for himself is really a prayer for glory. Glory is the theme. And when we think of glory, uh, the word glory means a weightiness, a heaviness, a powerful splendor, something that instills awe. Would be something that's glorious, that has glory. So we're going to see that this morning as we look at this passage. It's quite evident that though Jesus' prayer is about himself and for himself, it's in no way a selfish prayer. It's for him, it's about him, but it's not selfish. So we'll break this down into three sections glorified to the glory of the Father, gifts from the Father, going back to the Father. Let's pick it up in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus begins in a familiar way, addressing the Father. That's who he's praying to. And then he says, the hour has come. We've heard about the hour throughout our study of the book of John. The hour refers to the timing of his crucifixion, the timing of his glorification. The hour is the time when the time would arrive for the Son of Man to be lifted up, as he talked about in John 3.14. Throughout the Gospel, we see over and over and over again that the hour had not come. The hour had not come. The hour had not come. But then, in John 12, we see a switch. The hour had come. Thus starting the last Days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's here in this prayer, Jesus is recognizing before his Father and the disciples, the hour is here. His arrest in the garden was imminent. His mock trial was coming. The scourging, the crucifixion are just hours away. The hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' glorification, that's the climax of the story. The glorification of the Son is comprised of Jesus' death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, the enemy of sin defeated, Christ reigning as King. And that glorification can only happen because the time has arrived, the hour has come. And the glorification of the Son can only happen through, first, the humiliation of the Son. 
Jesus is requesting, Father, glorify your Son. How different are we than, than, than Jesus? Uh, if I knew that like in a few hours I was going to endure one of the most painful, agonizing times of my life, I don't think I would say, Father, bring it. Bring it on. I'd be like, the hour has come. But it's daylight savings time, right? So let's just go back one hour. We'll wait. Or, you know, uh, the hour's come, but the clock's, clock's definitely broken. Let's change the battery. Let's make sure it's really coming because it's going to be rough. Jesus isn't like us. He's perfect. He knows the will of the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. It wasn't an easy prayer. We know that. Jesus goes to the garden and prays again. And when he goes to the garden, he's praying. And he, it's, the Bible tells us he's sweating drops of blood in agony before it was to occur. But just because it wasn't easy didn't mean it wasn't necessary. And Jesus, more than anyone, understood that. Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. In this statement, we also see not only that the Son needs to be glorified, but we see the motivation behind Jesus' words. He wants to be glorified so that the Father is glorified. How often do we ask for that? That we, that we would receive glory just so we could hand it off. We'd like to think that we would. That would be nice. But sometimes I think as, as humans living in a fallen world, that temptation to become our own little gods, lowercase g, is too strong to ask for glory. But Christ is the only one who can ask for glory because he's the only one who can handle glory while at the same time glorifying the Father. And the reason he can do that is because their wills are perfectly in tune together. We, by nature, because of sin, are glory thieves. We want it for ourselves. And in doing so, we typically don't turn that glory back to God. If our desire is to look like Christ, and I hope that it is, if our desire is to look like Christ, then God's glory needs to be our first desire. I'll say that again. If our desire is to look like Christ, then God's glory needs to be our first desire. When I think of Jesus' attitude in this prayer, I'm reminded of Luke 18, 9-14. This passage comes to mind a lot, but it's the parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here we have two prayers. And Jesus tells that the Pharisee goes and he prays. And this is what the Pharisee prays. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's the Pharisee's prayer. What do we see? We see glorification, but but not God-exalting glorification. We see self-glorification. He's praying to God for God to notice him and almost like he wants God to glorify him for what he's done rather than his good deeds being to the praise and the glory of God. Saying, God, look at me, look at all I've done instead of saying, look at me, look at the work you've done. We serve a God who is abundantly glorious, whose power is unfathomable, We can't possibly stand before Him seeking our own glory. When we get but a glimpse of the glory of God, we're forced in the position of the tax collector in that parable. 
who stood off to the side, who was beating his chest, who wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. Instead, he just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes that parable with this statement. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus shows us that himself. Philippians 2, 8-11 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ humbled himself, took on flesh, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, went to the cross, bore our sins, and he's exalted. He's glorified. And it says, to the glory of God the Father. The glorification of the Son happened through the humiliation of the Son to the glory of God the Father. If our desire is to look like Christ, God's glory needs to be our first desire. Jesus is able to glorify the Father because their wills are perfectly in tune, like I was saying earlier. Jesus' glorification is the Father's glorification because He and the Father are one. Their wills are united. There's no competition for greatness. Like, we, we get in those little competitions over, like, stupid little silly things. Here we're talking about the actual glory of salvation and the the world looking on and giving worship, and Christ isn't concerned about him getting it. He wants the Father to get it, because they're one. They're united. It's a wonderful picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. For us, seeking the glory of God is not something that happens naturally. And it's not something that is just going to happen overnight. Like, all of a sudden, we're just going to be like, I don't care about myself. I'm selfless now. Now all I care about is God's glory, like perfectly. It's just not going to happen. It's this constant tension we live in. My glory versus God's glory. But as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our walk with Christ, and the Spirit's at work with us, work in us, molding us, shaping us, conforming us to look like Christ, a process happens where our desires begin to change. And we begin to seek the glory of God more and more, and our own glory less. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not about our glory. It's about His. It's not about our fame. It's about His. If Jesus wanted worldly glory, He could have had it. We see all throughout the Gospel accounts. He could have, he could have just had it like that. When he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan's saying, just bow to me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. He doesn't do it. After he feeds the multitude with, with a couple loaves and some fish, they wanted to make him their king right then and there. He runs away so it doesn't happen. If he wanted the earthly glory that fades away, he could have got it. But he w- awaited a better glory. 
A glory that comes through obedience to the Father. Through His glorification by going to the cross. We see that in verse 4. We'll come back to verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The work that Jesus is talking about is his complete work while he was on earth. All the miracles, the teaching, the signs, the one-on-one interactions, and also the coming death, the coming burial, the coming resurrection. All his work cumulatively on earth displayed the glory of the Father. All of it. All those things pointed and led up to this Hour. And even though uh, it includes future events, but it's written in the past tense, and the reason for that is because the cross is inevitable. It's not a, a maybe, maybe it'll happen kind of thing, but we, we don't know. Like, it's locked into place. The hour has come. Jesus is talking as though it already happened because for him it's a done deal. Remember, he's not operating on our timetable. He is fully God and fully man. He knows the hours here, the time is now. The work that Christ came to accomplish was set in motion. The pieces just had to fall in place, and they were falling. Judas already was out the door on his way to sell Jesus out for a couple pieces of silver. He was going to tell him where Jesus was going to be. Jesus was going to be arrested. All of it's underway. The work is accomplished. The hour is here. Jesus accomplished the work that God gave him to do for the glory of the Father. The cross is where we see the glory of God's character on full display. The cross is where we see God's holiness. It's where we see God's justice. It's where we see God's wrath. Even though we don't like it, it's there. Christ absorbs it. We see God's mercy. We see God's grace. We see God's love all on the cross. Pastor John MacArthur said, If Jesus had stopped short of the cross, that would have proved there is a degree of love to which God is not prepared to go for us. The cross proves there is no limits to God's love. End quote. Christ's atoning work on the cross displays the glory of God. Jesus was concerned with the Father's glory. And if we want to look like Christ, God's glory needs to be first and foremost. Let's move on. The gifts from the Father, looking at verses 2 and 3. Jesus continues his prayer and he's saying, Since you have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you, the Father, have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here we get another look at the relationship between Father and Son within the triune God. The Son has been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? Whom the Father has given. So even though the Father and the Son are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, there is still a submission of the Son to the will of the Father. And when you really think about that, your mind just blows up and goes to a little puddle in your brain. But that's how it is. Uh, And because 
there are many other people who can articulate things better than myself. I'll go to Wayne Grudem for an explanation, at least that we can kind of grasp. And he, he said the relationship between the Trinity is, is, like, is like this in regards to submission. He says, in those relationships, the Trinity, Scripture speaks of the Father having a unique role of initiating, planning, directing, sending, and commanding. It speaks of the Son as having the role of joyfully agreeing with, supporting, carrying out, and obeying the Father. And it speaks of the Spirit as acting in joyful obedience to the leadership of both the Father and the Son. End quote. See, submission, it's not a domineering thing. Like, we think of it like uh, sometimes like a negative thing. It's not a domineering thing, but it's rather it's an outflow of unity. It's an outflow of, of an understanding of the will of the Father. See, the Son understands the Father's will, agrees with the Father's will, and seeks the will of the Father. He carries it out. Philippians 2, I just read it a little while ago, said that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who is he obedient to? The Father. There's a, there's a submission there. And we see here, Jesus is praying, he's recognizing it's the Father who gives him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom the Father has given him. It's pretty similar to what we saw back in chapter 10. Who knows how long ago that was at this point. Um, so let's remind ourselves. <laughs> John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus is saying, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. The Son gives them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Can't be snatched out of the Son, can't be snatched out of the Father. Why? Jesus says it. I and the Father are one. We've been given to the Son who gives us eternal life. We don't typically think of ourselves as gifts who have been given. We think of, of salvation and eternal life as a gift, which it is. It's a free gift of grace given to us by God. But we don't think of ourselves as gifts being given to the Son. But we are. We're given to Him. Just, just as we receive Christ, Christ receives us as brothers and sisters, as fellow children of the Father. The Bible says we're co-heirs with Him. The Father gives the gift of His children to the Son, and the Son gives us eternal life. What a value. We're not just someone who's taking eternal life, but we're being given into it. We're being granted eternal life. Christ values us. The Father values us. We're valuable enough to give as a gift. And we're given eternal life. Now, eternal life, when we think about it, we think of eternal life as somewhere just out there. Out there is eternal life. Right here is life. Out there is eternal life. We think of it's something we eventually get to when we're done on this earth. Whether it's good eternal life or bad eternal death that's after. But Jesus doesn't define eternal life in, in those terms. 
Look at what he says. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life isn't just some place we end up at eventually. Eternal life starts now. Because eternal life is about not just a place, but knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ. It doesn't start when we die. It begins when the Spirit opens our eyes to who God is, opens our hearts, and we believe in faith that God is who He says He is, and that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That's when eternal life is. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life isn't something that's just out there. We're just waiting for it. We're in it. If you know Christ, if you know the Father, we are in eternal life now. It gets better, that's for sure, but we're in it. We're in the, the here and now. And when Jesus says no, like he's saying, know the Father and the Son, he's not talking about just some cognitive knowledge. Like in school, we're given a lot of knowledge, and then we end up forgetting a lot of knowledge. It's not just something that we know. It's not some vague knowledge that there's something out there, there's, some, there's something bigger, man. Like, it's not that. Our culture would tell us that there's so many gods, and you know what? Every single one is valid, good, all leads to the same place. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying eternal life is knowing the one true God. And when he says no, he doesn't just mean cognitively no, but he means believe and put your faith and trust. That's what it is to know God. To know the one true God is to know and believe in the God who created everything by speaking it into existence. To know the one true God is to know and believe in the God who led an entire race of people out of slavery through waters of the parted Red Sea, through the wilderness and into the promised land. To know and believe in the one true God who sent His only begotten Son to redeem mankind from sin and death. To know means to have a personal knowledge, a personal relationship it's, it's intimate to believe in faith that He is sovereign, He is powerful, that He keeps His promise, that He protects His people. To know God is to believe in God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. Demons cognitively know who God is and they fear Him. But they don't follow Him. They're not in a relationship with Him. They're opposed to Him. They know but they don't know like what Jesus is talking about in this prayer. To know God is to believe in Him, to put our faith in Him, to follow Him. I mean, why did John write this gospel account? He, he tells us, John 20, verse 31, we'll get there. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Knowing and believing Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? See, John understood that knowing Christ is of measureless worth. And that's why he wrote so passionately about Him 
in both this whole gospel account, the, the three epistles we have, the book of Revelation. This is why we exist as a church. So that others may know and believe that Christ is the Savior and Redeemer. I mean, we got it written on the wall in the lobby. It's important to us. It should be important to us. That people would, would know the one true God and Christ who He sent. We want to share that good news. We preach it not just for our own edification and building up, but so that people, as John, as John said, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in His name. Do we believe that? What do you believe? What are you trusting in? And along with the saving faith, that saving belief, that, that aspect of knowing God, there should also be an aspect where we're growing in knowledge. We should, we should know God more today than the day when we first came to faith in Him. We should. Something. Do we pursue to know God more? When we think of the word theology, we think of something that's like up here, like theology. Oh. But... Theology just means the study of God, the learning about God. And believe it or not, we're all called to be theologians. And whether we recognize it, in some way we are. We need, as we press on in our faith, we should be seeking to know more about God and who He is. Through prayer, through meditating on the Scriptures, through, through reading solid books explaining the Scriptures listening to pastors and teachers who seek to exposit the Bible with integrity to the glory of God. The songs that we sing should, should help us grow in our knowledge. Uh, music that we sing here, I, I view it as incredibly important. We don't want to just sing songs that um, invoke just some vague emotion. But the songs we sing should also teach us about who God is, about the work of the gospel, about the, a multitude of things. We should be growing in our knowledge of God. We'll never grow in our knowledge of God if our faith is just something we pull out for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings and then tuck it back away again. It's not something we can do solo either. We need to be in community. It's one of our core values, community. It's in community where... Iron can sharpen iron, as the proverb says, where we can encourage and challenge one another, help one another grow in that knowledge. We, we don't need to grow alone. I would even say we can only grow just so far on our own. We need each other. I've played baseball my whole life, uh, since I was actually small, which wasn't a long period of time. Um, and as a hitter, uh, if I struggle, struggle with the curveball, which I did, if I wanted to get better at it, I mean, these days I guess I could look at YouTube videos, or, but back then like, there were like, little books in the library that talked about pitches and how they worked. And I could read those. I could go into a batting cage and just put it on curveball mode and see curveballs all day. But I wasn't actually going to get better at hitting a curveball unless I had a pitcher to throw it to me. Because when you have a pitcher, 
you're actually seeing the motion. You're actually going between getting a fastball and then getting a curveball. I needed, as a hitter, the hitter needs the pitcher to throw him the pitches in order for him to get better at it. Just reading on my own, just watching YouTube videos, all that can only get me so far. I need the other person. It's that way in our faith. We need other people to help us grow. We need to be theologians who desire to grow more in our knowledge of God together in community. Are you in a community group? Are you getting together with uh, with other people to encourage and challenge you in your walk? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? It's part of eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Look at going back to the Father. Verse 5. And this, sorry, Um, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is petitioning the Father to return him to the glory he had before time. The glory he had with the Father. See, though Christ is praying to the Father, what he's also doing is he's declaring a very important truth to the onlooking disciples. He's affirming that his existence didn't begin in the manger. His existence didn't begin in Mary's womb. He has existed with God, as God, since before the world existed. And this is so important. This is so important to John that he begins this whole book with the statement, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. Jesus' teaching stuck with John. John wants us and anyone else who would read to know that Jesus was more than just a moral teacher who walked the earth. He was more than just a guy speaking peace and love. He wanted everyone to know that Jesus Christ was the eternal God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus himself says, Before Abraham was, I am. Communicating his, that his existence was the same existence, that he is the same God who provided for and led Israel. He left his glory to come and be glorified through the cross, through the burial, through the resurrection. He left his majesty of dwelling with the Father to come and dwell with his very creation. One of the songs that we sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, I love And it sings of all different aspects of Christ's accomplished work. But one line in particular that sticks out is, Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. And that word condescended has has a weight to it, because it doesn't just mean Christ went from one place to another place. It means that he condescended means to do something below one's dignity, or below one's level of importance. So we don't like when people talk to us condescendingly because they're lowering us below where we think we should be. But Jesus condescended in that he went from glory 
glory with the Father, something we can't even imagine or fathom, He left that to become the creation that He created. Why? As we saw in verse 4, to accomplish the work that the Father had given Him to do. Mankind unable to reconcile the broken relationship between man and God. So Christ had to come, God had to come do the reconciling. That work occurred through Christ's glorification. It starts with the cross and ends with him seated once again at the right hand of the Father. See, there are cults out there that take the name of Jesus, take the scriptures, completely distort them, ignore what's in them, and they just would say, Christ was a, a created being. Doesn't exist for all eternity. Not, not at all eternal. What they're teaching is the false Christ and a false gospel. Isaiah 43.10 says, God is saying, he says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Christ doesn't come into existence after God the Father. That would be a complete contradiction. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed as one God and three persons from before creation. As Jesus says here, before the world existed. Paul puts it best in Colossians. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the author of Hebrews says this about Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Glorification. He makes purification for sins through the cross, and he's exalted back to the right hand of the Father. The Son is fully God, who existed since before the foundations of the earth. And he came to earth to make the atonement for our sins. And the ultimate sign of the completion of Christ's work on the cross is his resurrection from the grave and his ascension back up to the glory from which he came. And this return to glory that Jesus is talking about, that he's praying, was was a hope for him. He was going to endure the most painful time of his time on earth, of his life on earth. So he's looking forward to the hope, and not just a maybe kind of hope, a sure hope of dwelling in glory with his Father once again. Knowing that sin would be defeated. He would be victorious over it. He'd be seated as the King of Kings. And our hope and our confidence, it's, it's not much different than Christ. Obviously, we don't just all of a sudden become God. That's not going to happen. But 
We endure the present sufferings of this life by looking forward to the hope of what is to come, one day dwelling with God in paradise forevermore. Eternal life starts now, but we're looking forward to the hope. when We're not in this broken world, but we're in a perfected world. The glory of, of God that we experience in this life will not compare to the glory of being with God in the new heavens and new earth. What hope do you have this morning? What gets you through the day? Are you living in the security of faith and trust in the finished work of Christ and knowing the one true God? Are you living with a a fleeting hope? Are you living with a hope that just what we see in front of us is all there is? Jesus went back to his Father in heaven. And we will one day be with him there. On Christmas Eve this past December, we looked at Isaiah 53. The description of the suffering servant. And though Christmas celebrates and and focuses on Christ's incarnation, we looked at what he was born to do. Essentially, we looked at what the hour was to bring. Christ was born to give his life. He came from glory to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He came to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, to be smitten by God and afflicted, to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He came that by his wounds we would be healed. He bore our sins as the perfect atonement lamb, our substitute. He condescended to bring lost sinners into the family of God. So that we, we could see the glory and the goodness and the love of the Father. That we would see our sin in light of a holy God and repent and believe. We would know eternal life. That's why we take communion together as the family of God. To remember all that Christ did. We take of the bread Remembering Christ's body that was broken for us. The drink of the cup, which is, symbolizes the new covenant that was in his blood that he shed on the cross. Reminded of how the eternal God of glory left that paradise and didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That he died, was buried, but rose again victorious over sin, death, and hell, is seated at the right hand of the Father, glorified forevermore. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So this table this morning, it's not a King's Chapel only table. It's for anyone who has put their faith and their trust in Christ. If you haven't done that, we pray that you would. Pray that you would see that God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the one true God that you would know and believe in the work of Christ. If you haven't, if you don't know Him, if you don't follow Him, if you haven't put your trust in Him, we just ask that you refrain from taking the elements. But if you are here this morning and you know Christ and you're walking 
in faith with Christ. I ask that you take some time, spend it quietly confessing, asking, what do I need to get out of my life that's preventing me from glorifying God? Am I trying to be my own God, lowercase g? If our desire is to look like Christ, then God's glory needs to be our first desire. What's hindering that this morning? Confess, repent, and rejoice in knowing the accomplished work of Jesus is complete. Come to the table. Celebrate the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see the goodness faithfulness, justice, the grace, the mercy, the glory that you display through the magnificent work of your Son on the cross. May it humble us like the tax collector. But Lord, let us not stay in a place of guilt because we know that Christ bore our guilt on the cross. Help us to confess, to repent, and ultimately rejoice in the finished work of the gospel. Help us to make your glory our first desire as we live on mission with you and keep our eyes fixed on the hope of one day dwelling with you forever and ever, glorifying your name forevermore. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.